Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all this morning and uh, to continue looking at the book of Nehemiah. You know, there's a tendency whenever uh, we're reading the events that take place in the Bible to focus on the miraculous and the outstanding. Those events stir us up and they give us great hope in the God that has procured our own salvation in such an astounding way. Just as often, though, if not more often, God is at work in the mundane. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at the beginning chapters of the book of Nehemiah, a historical record of the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And as we've done this, I've asked each of you over the course of the week to be reading along with me to look at the book of Nehemiah and to consider what is taking place and the significance that it has. And I hope that you have taken the time to do that. I think what you'll find, though, I'm sure it's not lost on those of you who have taken this banner up, that there's not much miraculous special revelation so far in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. No less, though, God is in control. And we see something miraculous in the way that events have started to unfold. God, of course, is the one and only God who is sovereign over all things, is in the midst of Nehemiah's burden laid on his heart upon hearing the news of Jerusalem's shame. He is at work in the generosity of King Artaxerxes in providing not only permission but provisions to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Now, if you think back just in terms of biblical history and go back to the the story that we find of Jericho when the Israelites were given an instruction by God to circle the city of Jericho for six days and on the seventh day to circle the city seven times in one day, we find something incredible. When the trumpets sounded on the last day, the walls of Jericho fell. When we read Nehemiah, though, we don't find something quite as startling. Instead, we find a lot of work and a lot of toil. But I want us to keep in mind that it's no less miraculous than the events that we read about when Jericho crumbled. God will demand labor, diligence, zealousness, and perseverance. While rebuilding the wall is not as miraculous as the destruction of another great city's walls, it is ingrained with the same marks of an obedience to God and a reliance upon Him to complete the work that He has prepared before us. Today, as we continue in our study, I want to ask just two simple questions. As we study it, I pray that you'll keep these questions on your mind. As we conclude, I pray that these questions will continue to convict you as we leave here. First, what has God burdened you with? Second, what are you doing about it? What has God burdened you with? And second, what are you doing about it? If you would now open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, where we'll be reading this morning. And before we read, we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you this morning as your people gathered together and called out as a visible assembly to proclaim your glory and to worship you in obedience and reverence. Lord, with our Bibles open this morning before us, I pray that your spirit would be the one that would teach us and translate for us the truth that we read, that you would bring for us understanding that we could not attain on our own. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, that you might be glorified and that we might be transformed. Lord, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold the awesome truths found in your law. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. This morning I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 11, and I will read down through verse 17. If you will then, read along with me as I read out loud. The Bible says, 
So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for my animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. In studying this passage, I think the first thing that we come up against is it would be very easy to read past that first sentence very quickly. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. We get some facts, let's move on. I don't want to do that this morning. Because we find something with an incredible impact in the way that we apply it to our lives. Mainly, or namely, what I'm talking about is the necessity that we have to rest. The necessity that we have to rest. Now let's drop this in context for a moment. What's just happened leading up to this point? Nehemiah, as we read in chapter 1, sometime during the fall, or towards the winter season in the month of Kislev, which would be our November, December, receives news that Jerusalem, after Ezra has been sent there, this is the second attempt to rebuild the city, still lies in ruins. The walls are destroyed, the gates are burned, the city is in a state of shame. The news of this breaks Nehemiah's heart, and he turns to prayer. Praise, and we know because in chapter 2 we pick up in the month of Nisan that at least four months have passed where Nehemiah has been praying and offering supplications that he might be able or that in some way Jerusalem might be restored to its dignity as a means of glorifying God. In Nisan, four months later, King Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah is the cupbearer for, offers him not just permission to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city walls, but also gives him letters that he might have the permission and the authority to do this. He offers him supplies by giving instruction that he would get lumber from the king's forest. He also gives him an entourage, traveling as the king's governor to leave the capital city of the Persian Empire of Susa, Susa, to travel all the way to Jerusalem. And so we pick up in the second half of chapter 2 then with at least eight months passing. How do I get that figure? The, The journey from Susa all the way to Jerusalem, it isn't a short distance. In a straight line, it would be 764 miles. Now, if we could get in our cars and set the cruise control at 70 miles per hour, not hit any heavy traffic along the way, and we could travel in a straight line, it would take us 11 hours to make that journey. If you're following me, Nehemiah didn't have a car that he could set the cruise control at 70 miles per hour. And most likely, he didn't travel through the desert. Instead, he probably took the highways, which meant that it would have taken him even longer, a distance quite a bit longer than 764 miles. It would have taken him three to four months to make this journey. I imagine when he got there, he was tired. The Bible says that when he came to Jerusalem, he was there three days. Those three days were a crucial, day, uh, a crucial time for Nehemiah to rest crucial time for Nehemiah to rest. 
He's getting ready, and this is strange to me because if you look at the progression of the book of Nehemiah, what's happened so far, this burden has been so big that it's stayed on his heart. It hasn't been removed from his heart. He's continued to be been burdened by it to the point that the king is able to notice it on his presence, even though he's not sad in the king's presence. The king can see the burden that is upon him. Don't you think... If something was bothering you or had been laid upon your heart for that long of a time and you were given the ability to take care of or do whatever you thought that needed to be done and you were finally there, that you would run forward? Why would you stop? Why would you stop? We live in a cultural climate today that I think idolizes work. We have fantastic images in our head of what success looks like. And, and when we think about that, I think we often think of corporate CEOs who jump off one plane to go into the next plane to go to the next meeting. They carry along laptops with them so that they can work wherever they, they're at. They do not stop. They go to one meeting and they make some business deal so that they can leave immediately to go to the next business, meal, business deal with no time for rest in any of it. And this is a big issue because God hasn't designed us in such a way that we can do anything without rest. Quite frankly, there is a physical need that we all have to rest. And there's consequences whenever we don't obey or listen to our bodies in that way. Our bodies are not made to go without rest. There are short-term consequences if you go a couple of days without rest, you'll experience a lack of alertness. You'll have excessive daytime sleepiness. You'll have impaired memory. Not to mention your relationships will be stressed because you're more likely to be grumpy. Your quality of life declines because you're not able to enjoy simple things. And then I think most consequential is there's a higher risk of being involved in a car accident because of your slower reaction times. Long-term effects, if you continue to push onward and you continue to do life without resting, you can have high blood pressure as a consequence. Diabetes can be a consequence. Heart attack, heart failure, or stroke. Not to mention your body's metabolism doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, so you're at a higher risk of obesity. Your chemical imbalance begins to take shape because your body, again, is not recovering and healing the way that it's supposed to, so there's mental Fatigue that results in depression. There's an impairment to our immunity. More likely to get sick. And worst of all, you might even have a lower sex drive. No one, no one laughed. I thought that was funny. Our bodies need rest. There's some practical advice we could glean from this. When we're tired, it isn't the time for us to make big decisions. It isn't the time to quit our job. It's not the time to start a new job. It's not the time to make big purchases. Maybe it's time to sleep on it before we make big decisions. We should probably avoid emotional conversations. At least I know I should. It's a bad time to pick a fight with Michelle if I'm tired. I'm emotionally vulnerable and um, probably just a little emotionally volatile. You never know what's going to stir up. Conversations might become more serious than they need to be. We need to be careful to care for ourselves, especially when we're tired. Now, those are practical, physical uh, issues that we can run up against whenever we're tired. But there's also a spiritual component here. And that really is what needs to be emphasized whenever we look at what's happening to Nehemiah. You see, those three days of rest, if we cross-reference this with Ezra, were directly related to a time of spiritual reverence to God. It was a time of worship. Truly, I think sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can do is to get flat out for Jesus. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that we have the ability to do is to rest. 
God has designed our bodies in such a way that all of those physical consequences I listed out are our body's way of telling us that we need to rest so that we would be reminded that we are not capable of doing all things on our own. The need for rest is modeled for us in the creation. God created the entire world, the heavens and the earth, in six days. And on the seventh day, He rested. One of the Ten Commandments tells us, if we looked at Exodus 20 and we just read verses 8 through 11, that we are to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I think when we think about the Sabbath, this is often one of the commandments that's easiest for us to overlook because, well, culturally, it's not relevant to us. We have a culture that demands that we keep going on and we're pushing forward and and doing things without taking time to rest. And certainly in those pictures, I described the picture of the CEO jumping from plane to plane, going to meeting to meeting with no stop. Those consequences, while they might be seen in the news and the headlines about great deals and transactions that are taking place, are often seen just as often on the front pages of magazines and newspapers whenever families meet their dismay because they aren't being cared for. There are consequences to not resting. We think that the the commandment, or I, I think a lot of times by our actions, what we're actually saying is that we don't think that it's completely necessary that we would observe a day of rest in reverence of God. I think the reason for that is that we don't have an understanding why God has done this for us. In a lot of ways, in many times, when we look at the law that's contained in the Old Testament, we find statutes that are exceptionally practical, that we should wash our hands, that we should pursue cleanliness. These are extremely practical commandments that we find in the Old Testament that keep us safe. Rest is a lot like that. It keeps us not only safe, but it keeps us able to do the work that God has given us. It forces us to remember that we cannot do things by ourselves. Taking rest is an act of spiritual worship because it is... It, 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 oh, start over. By the way, one of the consequences of not being rested is you might get tongue-tied. The reason spiritual rest is an act of, or an, the, the reason rest is an act of spiritual worship, is because it forces us to acknowledge that God is the only one who can provide for us everything that we need. It's an act of trust in saying that I am not in control of everything that is in my life, and I have to pause for a moment to rely on the one person who is my provider and my sustainer. The God of heaven, who gives me all that I have, provides for me all that I need. It is a spiritual need, not just a physical need. It is modeled for us in creation. It is an act of trusting God. It's absolutely essential to being a people who worship God with our lives. Rick Warren gave a model about avoiding burnout. He said that we should abandon annually, that we should withdraw weekly, and that we should divert daily. I've added to that. I've picked this up from Larry Barker, our BMA uh, North American Missions Director, that we should abandon annually, that we should quarantine quarterly, that we should withdraw weekly, and that we should divert daily. Spiritual practices that push us to rest are absolutely essential to our ability to worship God. They are what gives us clarity of mind to be able to study His Word and to have the concentration that we need to actually apply it to our lives. 
We divert daily, which means that every single day we should have a moment that we set aside to spend with God, learning from His Word, not just praying to Him, but listening to Him through the recorded Word that He's given to us. We should withdraw weekly, which means we should set aside the work that we have. In an observance of the Sabbath, we should not labor anymore, but that we should stop. And we should remember the one who provides everything that we have. I've added to it that we should quarantine quarterly. This is exceptionally practical. Because oftentimes we get caught up in the day-to-day things that are going on in our lives. And we forget that there's a next week and a next month. It's necessary to quarantine quarterly so that we can have a vision of what's taking place in the future. And we should abandon annually. Because even when we do all three of these former things that I've mentioned, we have a tendency to grow fatigued and tired. And that annual abandonment is a time for us to recharge, to refocus, and to reassess. I mentioned there are some practical things that we should not do whenever we are tired because of the physical consequences that they have. You shouldn't pick a fight with your spouse whenever you're tired. You shouldn't make big decisions. You also should not evaluate yourself spiritually whenever you're tired because you really don't know where you're at. You should be careful not to to, uh, evaluate somebody else spiritually whenever you're tired because you most likely can't see clearly enough to do so. We need to take time to rest. In light of the spiritual and physical needs that we have to rest, it is necessary to criticize a culture that glorifies that of a non-stop, never-ending work cycle. In many ways, we are just as culpable as the world in idolizing work. The Old Testament law hasn't, isn't to be done away with. This is something that we all need to observe and to practice and to make a priority that we rest. We find Nehemiah in the second half of chapter 2 taking time to rest. Even though he was burdened and excited for what was about to take place and the rebuilding of the wall and all the plans, I can't imagine everything that he had gone through. Four months, eight months, How much time had passed? And I mentioned last week that there's no reason that we couldn't also suspect that maybe this was a year and four months or two years and four months that he was waiting and praying. However long God made him wait between the time of his original being burned with the news that the the city was still in destruction to the time that King Artaxerxes gave him permission and provision to go and rebuild the wall. Whatever this time is, whatever this burden is, before getting started, he needed to take time to rest. Before starting a new project, he needed to take time to rest. Church, I think it's possible and I think it's all too common that in the church, and I mean in many churches, that we find people who have been serving the church and serving in positions for so long that they've lost their original zeal for what they are doing. They've been serving and teaching Sunday school classes and and welcoming people as they come in the front door and sweeping floor mats and, and reaching out to their community for so long that they're no longer passionate about what they're doing because it's just another job to them. It's just another thing that they need to pick up. That is not spiritual worship when you sacrifice yourself in that way. Spiritual worship is when you give your time, yourself time to recharge to the point that you are actually able to worship with the same zeal that you started with. I I had the privilege this week of speaking with one of my friends in northwest Arkansas, one of the men that I think helped to disciple me. I said, I think, I mean, did help to disciple me. And in, in doing so, I was overwhelmed with the reality as he told me how close he was to approaching burnout. As a pastor, how tired he was. 
how burdened he was as he saw his children growing up and realizing how many times he sacrificed. You know, he said, in his words, not mine, I've done a great job of being there for my kids. Every band event, everything that they went to be a part of, I was there. But you know what I neglected? Spending time with them. Life was so busy, I didn't spend time with them. Because if it wasn't for those events, I was busy with other things. When I was at home with my family, congregants would call me, and I need to run up to the hospital, or I need to go visit with somebody. And he says, I put my family on the altar of ministry. We can do the same thing just trying to keep the wheels moving. Just trying to keep the church running. We do the same thing when we don't take time to rest. And you know what the real shame in all of it is? Those of us who are tired from serving in positions that we've been serving in for the past five years or ten years are also those of us who are supposed to be the example that those that we are serving are looking up to. And so the example that they see is not one of a person who sacrifices themselves on the altar before God, as we're instructed to do in the Bible, in our spiritual worship, in our spiritual sacrifice, but they see someone who idolizes work above reverence for God. I'm not, and just like really fast, I want to break from my notes and just speak to you. If you're serving, please don't abandon ship because you're tired. We still need you. But do it right. If you need time to recharge, reach out to somebody to help you. Have somebody relieve you for a week or two so that you can rest and worship. Ask for help if you need it. The picture of the church is not one that we're doing things on our own or running the ship on our own. The picture of the church is that we're running it together. Likewise, if you are not serving, step up and help these people. Time has gone on long enough that the same people have been serving in the same positions. It is time to relieve them. What has God burdened you with? If there is something laying on your heart, if you are worshiping God truly, there is. What are you doing about it? Because if you're not doing anything, that isn't worship. We'll move on then. After Nehemiah arrested for three days, he went out at night. I want you to notice something that's kind of startling between verse 12 down to verse 16. Twice Nehemiah mentions that he did not let the authorities or anyone know what he was doing or what God had laid on his heart. Three times he mentions that the surveying expedition that he leads is done at night, in secret. It's a total of five times that this is emphasized. It seems pretty important that Nehemiah kept the plans and the burden that God had given to him under wraps. I want to bring this to life just for a second. Remember I said when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, what had happened was the king had actually given him an entourage and authority, which means when he arrived he wasn't a one-man show, but instead he was an entire militia. He arrived as the governor of Jerusalem with authority. And he comes, this would have been a big scene. New governors in town, just arrived from the capital of the city. All these men, all these horses, here they are. And he didn't tell them why he was there. He knew why he was there. He knew why he had asked the king, but he hadn't shared yet what he was thinking. He took off in night and in secret to look at the wall. Now, this is an incredible picture of what leadership should look like. 
You see, we find if we just read back, and I skipped over it, verses 9 and 10, that just upon Nehemiah's arrival into the city, there was already resistance coming, that there was some sort of organization happening around Jerusalem. He had already started to meet opposition when he arrived. And I think about how discouraging that would have been for everyone. To know that there was already opposition. And look, Nehemiah doesn't share that he is there to rebuild the wall, not just yet. He spends time going out and actually looking at the work that needs to be done. I'm sure he had grandiose visions of what it would look like to rebuild the wall and what it would take. and Well, at least what it would look like in its finished product. product. But that doesn't always help us. A good leader needs to have a vision of what the final result looks like, what the outcome should look like. But a great leader also knows what the work is going to look like. There are intermediary steps between A and B. Looking at the wall, Nehemiah would have found that they were crumbled, that they had become a part of the landscape. Remember, this is 400 years, something that's passed. The wall's been down for quite a while. Grass is growing up. It's no longer crumbled ruins. This is just part of the landscape. They probably stopped and had lunch on the crumbled wall, the burnt gates. And while they're traveling, we find Nehemiah traveling with his men around the city wall, up the valley, And nobody knows what is on Nehemiah's heart. Even the men that are with him, I don't think they would have known what was on his heart. In fact, the Bible tells us that he hasn't shared with them. And I imagine that these people that went with him perhaps had already lived in Jerusalem. They were used to it. They didn't know the purpose. They had seen these walls their entire life the same way that they had been. They had been looking at these and it was just a way of life. It didn't stand out as shameful. It didn't stand out as ruins. But Nehemiah saw it with a different perspective because he had been given a specific burden by God. As they were traveling at night, Nehemiah didn't see what was there. He saw what needed to be there. Traveling along up the valley, Nehemiah saw how the wall needed to be rebuilt. And he saw what the work would take, the cleanup projects. He figured out what the the stages should look like and the goals that needed to be set. He saw things from a perspective that they weren't able to see because there's only one reason. God had given him a burden that he hadn't given to all of them. God had placed on his heart an imperative, something that he had to work on that caused him to see the rubble in a way that the people who had grown up there could not see. This emphasis on keeping things secret until the full vision is mapped out I think is very practical. You see, God's people, I think if Nehemiah would have arrived on day one and said, hello, my name is Nehemiah. I'm the new governor of Jerusalem. I am here with the authority of King Artaxerxes and permission from the king to rebuild the city wall. Let's get started. I don't think things would have gone very well. Think about it. There was already some opposition that he was facing from Sanballat and Tobiah. We'll read more about them later. The people upon hearing this, I think, would have been discouraged. They would have laughed at Nehemiah. They would have said, good luck. We've had leaders here before. Ezra was here. There's somebody before him. It didn't work. We tried it. It's not going to work. You're not the first leader that's come and said that we need to rebuild. Hot chance.
So Nehemiah keeps it secret. He surveys the work. And by keeping it secret, he protects the plans that God has given him from discouragement. I think what we find in this is oftentimes we can handle opposition from the outside world. We can handle the opposition that came whenever they arrived in verses 9 through 10, whenever Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, heard this and were displeased that Nehemiah was coming. What we cannot survive is opposition that comes from within us. That's something that is so crucial that we protect. And when we apply that to the church and the way that she functions, this is exceptionally practical, right? The church can survive opposition from the outside world. In fact, we've done it for thousands of years. The church has been sustained since the life of Christ really successfully. God's Word is carried over the entire world. More people have heard the good news today than they heard yesterday. And that's going to keep happening. What the church cannot survive, what will hurt the church more than anything, is whenever we are discouraged internally. When we're dissuaded internally when we're fighting against each other internally, when we would rather stick to our own guns and pursue our own burdens and pursue our own passions, when we would rather our own preferences be the priority than the work that we have been given. What are we here for this morning? Some of you are here for your Sunday morning lecture. You can sit in a chair and close your eyes and listen to what the preacher has to say. Of course, that's not the case. We're here to worship God. My position, what I'm here for this morning, is is really twofold. I'm here for two things. One, to proclaim the gospel that has been entrusted to me. To evangelize. That if somebody's here, that they would hear the good news that God has come into this world in the form of flesh, that He could sacrifice Himself on our own behalf to pay a debt that we earned on our own, that we could be reconciled to Him, that we could have a relationship with Him, that we can have hope in the future because of what He's done. Second, is that if you've been saved, that you would be growing in spiritual maturity, that you'd be pushing onward to a point that you would be a leader in God's church, a leader like Nehemiah who has a burden and can put it into action with God's provisions and God's timing to make something come about. So we see something practical taking place. Nehemiah keeps things secret for a time. He surveys what the work is going to look like. He knows the details, not just what the beginning result and the end result is, but he's actually looked at what's going to take shape. It's not going to happen on its own. It's going to require diligence. It's going to require zeal. It's going to require perseverance, even in the face of opposition. It's going to require sacrifice and dedication. And here we have a picture of Nehemiah's leadership. You know, I I mentioned, and it's just so easy to apply this to what's happening in our church right now. I want to go ahead and do it, but realize I promise I'm not trying to persuade you guys one way or the other. I mentioned in our last business meeting or our annual business meeting that there is a development project taking place over by my neighborhood that's going to be between 300 and 500 houses. And I said, you know, I haven't done the research or or anything like that to know, but those developers who are making the investment to do that, the city council's already approved it and everything else, I think those developers probably did the research that they needed to do to find out that people will actually buy the houses that they're planning on building. And if they didn't, they're stupid. And I don't think they're stupid. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I see on Facebook all the time people looking for more housing in Greenwood or near Greenwood. It's almost daily. 
Our community's growing. Our church, if it's healthy, should grow as a result of that. When I think about the past year that I've been here, I've already seen this sanctuary filled to a point where it wasn't comfortable to sit, seat everybody. That's a physical need that is before us that potentially would put a bottleneck on our ability to proclaim the gospel and edify God's people, to help them spur onward to spiritual maturity. But look, we don't have the provisions to expand the sanctuary, to allow for more seating. We just don't. So we need to pray for that, like Nehemiah prayed. And we need to plan for that with common sense, with the same work that it takes to be diligent in, in, in working towards this. If I knew my car was about to die, I would start saving up for a new car. If I knew my sanctuary was about to be too small, I should start saving up for a new sanctuary. This is practical stuff that we're up against. And while it might be practical, it is just as miraculous as the events that we read about in the New Te Old Testament when the walls of Jericho come down, when the Red Sea divides in half. Because God is at work in the mundane just as much as He is at work in the miraculous. At home, my air conditioner, the house that we bought, oh, I, should have asked her to, I should have asked for a new air AC unit, but I didn't. And so my air conditioner is going out. And I'm not going to replace it because I don't have the provisions to do it, but I'm close. So I'm going to put it off a few more months. Maybe I'll make it until the fall. And at that point, I'll be able to get a new air conditioner, but I want to wait until I'm able to do it. In the meantime, I'm going to limp along. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to do anything and I'm just going to wait until time runs out. I want to start setting aside the practical needs that I have to fulfill a very physical need that I have because it gets hotter in Greenwood than it does anywhere else than I've ever lived. And I cannot handle it. I thought I could handle it. I'm too weak. I think the other day it felt like 106 degrees outside. And I, I work at a desk. And sweating at a desk is worse than sweating whenever you're doing yard work because it all just kind of gathers on your back between your shirt and the chair, and then you stand up, and it's awful. So, anyways, I just say that just to kind of point out, like, I'm doing something practical. I can't replace my air conditioner unit because it costs money that I don't have. I'm getting close. I'm going to wait until I can do it. The church is in the same position our community is growing. If our church is healthy, our church will continue to grow. If there's a practical need in the future. Let's reach that need as quickly as we can so that when the time comes, we can develop a vision that makes it possible for more people to hear the good news that God has shared with us, that we can share it with the rest of our community, that as people move to this area and the community continues to grow, that they won't move here without a purpose. Because God hasn't placed us here without a purpose. Just like God didn't place Nehemiah in a position as cupbearer to the king without a purpose. God is at work in the mundane just as much as He is at work in the miraculous, and the mundane is no less miraculous because of it. God's given us a vision. He's given us a command to reach the entire world that they might come to salvation through the good news of what Christ has done for us. We're not here to pat each other on the back. We're not here so that we can do things the way that they've always been done. We're not here so that we can serve in the same positions until we're so tired we one day keel over and die. We're here for a short time so that the world would benefit from it. All of our jobs, everything that we do, 
pale in comparison to the work that we've been called together to do as a church. We're part of something bigger. When we talk about missionaries serving all over the world, within our country, within our state, we aren't just supporting them so that they can do the work that we're supposed to be doing. We are supporting them so that we can be partners in the ministry doing the same work that they're doing wherever they are at, where we are at. And if we're not doing that, we're, we're doing it all wrong. We're not delegating out our responsibilities. We're amplifying what we are doing. And Nehemiah's position is very similar to our own. Because when I mention building projects and things like that, well, this church isn't very different than any other church. I think everyone would say, well, we've tried that before. We've been down that road before. And that might be discouraging. But nothing's stopping us. There's no new opposition. There's nothing standing in our way. There's nothing holding us back but our own lack of obedience our own fear, and our own cowardness. What has God burdened you with? And what are you doing about it? It doesn't take much to be burdened by something. But when it's a burden that comes from God, it isn't something that we can walk away from easily. When there's a burden that's been laid on our heart that comes from God, it's not something that we can escape. It's consuming. It takes up our time. It distracts us from the things that we are preoccupied with. It calls us to focus on it and to give it our full attention. What have you been burdened with? It's not going to leave you. You're not going to be able to run away from it. You can't escape it. So you might as well do something about it. The second question, what are you doing about it? The greatest spiritual sacrifice that we have to make as Christians is obedience. Obedience to the call that has been laid on our lives. Whether to be a member of a church, whether to confess sin, whether to disciple somebody younger than you, whether to serve in a new ministry position or to relieve somebody who has grown tired. Our obedience is the greatest form of worship that we have. Jump down to verse 17 with me right now, and we'll look at the last point this morning. Nehemiah shares his vision. After all of this, eight months have passed, at least. Three days have passed, and he rested. A few nights have passed, and he surveyed the work that needs to be done, and he gathers the people, and he says to them, Don't you see the trouble that we are in? I know you've lived here your whole life, and you've done things your own way for so long that you're used to it and you're comfortable, but God's people are not meant to sit back and relax and grow calloused to the need for change. I'm glad I can say I am biblically conservative. It means I don't think that the Bible changes. I think that what it means is perfect the way that it's written and that if I understand it in its original context, it is directly applicable today as it was then and that it doesn't need to be changed. 
I think the church should be biblically conservative just like that. Don't get that confused with being a preservative and preserving things that don't need to be preserved. Some things need to change because we have to grow. And if we're not growing, we're probably dying. So what needs to change? You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah goes on to tell the people about how God has already provided for these means, how he's given him permission from the king to rebuild the city and provisions from the king to actually do it. He has lumber that will be needed. He has the tools that will be needed. All he needs is for the people to get behind the vision that he's been given. This morning, our call to application is not much different. Whatever we've been given, whatever we've been burdened with, we are given it with a purpose, and it is a purpose that comes from God. Wherever we're at, no matter what we're doing, we have the same needs that Nehemiah has. To be God's people serving Him faithfully, we have a need to rest spiritually. To take time to set aside work so that we can remember that the one person that actually provides for everything that we need is God. The one person that actually sustains everything that we are is God. That we are incapable of doing anything on our own. But through prayer and through obedience, we can do more than we ever imagined. We're given the same picture. We have a... Maybe a different burden, but it didn't come about any different way. God put it there. And if God put it there, what are you doing about it? I'll ask our worship team to come up and we'll sing a song of invitation. I'll encourage you this morning to think about those two questions and to not let them escape you this morning. What have you been burdened with? And what are you doing about it? If you would, stand with me.